Uh, we are in lecture number 18, uh, and uh, tonight we're going to look at uh, open theism uh, or free will theism. Now, we've just been singing this uh, wonderful hymn, uh, Be Not Dismayed, Whate'er Betide, God Will Take Care of You. And what is the guarantee that God will and can and is able to take care of you, namely a premise of God's all-powerful, controlling sovereignty. And that sovereignty we've been looking at in various uh, respects. Uh, We were looking last week at the doctrines of election uh, and its counterpart, uh, reprobation. Uh, And tonight I want to look at... uh, two uh, particular aspects that call into question uh, God's control uh, over all things and especially God's control uh, over the future. Now this has uh, enormous pastoral, practical uh, ramifications, although some of the ideas we're about to talk about are are very deep and, and difficult. A few of them are esoteric, a few of them are over the edge, uh, but the, 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 uh, the point uh, behind it all is a very pastoral one. Uh, it has to do with uh, God's control and the nature of God's sovereignty. It has to do with the issue uh, of God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility, uh, our liberties, to what extent. Uh, is God's sovereignty in charge uh, and uh, to what extent does that uh, exercise itself over our free decisions. Now on page one I've given a couple of uh, very very personal anecdotes. Uh, One from Gregory Boyd, uh, one of the principal names uh, in the open theism movement. Uh, You'll notice uh, that these are all books written by well-known evangelical uh, and in some cases uh, reformed publishers. Uh, Baker Books, for example, and uh, the one on the bottom, Intervasti Press. Uh, These are not uh, views held by uh, liberals or deniers of scripture. Uh, Gregory Boyd and John Saunders uh, both uh, would have a very high view uh, of the doctrine of scripture. Uh, These are uh, regarded, uh, at least by some, as being within uh, the sort of circle of um, evangelical and and somewhat conservative uh, Christianity. And yet these are views that we're going to look at this evening. Uh, They're fairly recent views and they're calling uh, into question, uh, they're doing more than that, they are are radically uh, asserting uh, a different view of God, a different understanding of God, a different uh, model uh, of God, as they sometimes put it, a, a, different, uh, a different conception of who God is and what God is like. Uh, the first one uh, is a uh, uh, reference to Second uh, Kings 20. Uh, Gregory Boyd is reading his Bible. He's reading about Hezekiah, sick, and... Uh, God comes to him, tells him, set your house in order, for you will die and not recover. 
And then Hezekiah prays and, and uh, persuades the Lord to add 15 years to his life. And Gregory Boyd says, I read these verses many times, but for some reason they struck me as more profound and more peculiar this particular evening. What puzzled me was this. Was God being sincere when he had, uh, when he had uh, uh, Isaiah tell Hezekiah he wouldn't recover from his illness? And if so, then must we not believe that God radically changed his mind when he decided to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life? And this, uh, this uh, passage leads uh, somebody like Gregory Boyd to, to understand God in, an, in a different way. God can change his mind. God does not know the future in all of its details. He may know the broad picture, he may know the big picture if you like, but he doesn't know the details. Uh, And he doesn't know the details because man has uh, free will. Man has the power of contrary choice. Uh, In any given circumstance he may choose A, and in exactly the same circumstance he may choose B. Uh, And if that is true, then God cannot know in advance whether you would choose A or B. Uh, So Gregory Boyd uh, wants to uphold here a doctrine of of human freedom, of absolute human freedom, what is sometimes called uh, libertarianism. Uh, And he thinks he sees an aspect of that in this familiar story from 2 Kings 20. God uh, is stating one thing as he sees it, and then, and then that's not what happens. God has changed his mind. There is a, a limitedness to the knowledge of God in some way, in some capacity. The second uh, story is uh, much more personal, uh, and uh, one that may strike at the heart of one or two of you here. And I apologize for that. Uh, in advance, uh, this is uh, John Saunders coming home one night at this point in his life. He's a reporter. He's, he uh, comes across an accident and he gets out of the car and uh, reflexively begins to take pictures. And then somebody uh, comes up to him and says that he needs to stop because the, the body that is lying uh, underneath the truck is actually his brother. And uh, he goes home and he asks this question, God Why did you kill my brother? And then a similar incident uh, in the death of a child uh, ensues. And uh, he is uh, now uh, addressing the parents. And a similar question uh, continues. They'd always been told that God's ways are best. And questioning God is a sin in answering their question. I sought to provide them with a different model. Uh, of God. Uh, It has to do with uh, God's total control. You understand uh, Job uh, when when he lost uh, his ten children uh, immediately responded, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Uh, For Job, uh, however, however you explain it, From one point of view, the death of his children was part of the fulfillment of God's decree. God was in this. It wasn't as though God's hands were tied or that it caught him by surprise. It was all part of his omniscience. It was part of an overall plan that we may not fully understand and may never fully understand. But it's not important for us to understand. It's important that God understands and we must rest and be content in that. 
And that's the view, that's the traditional view, that would be my view. Uh, I imagine that would be the view of most of, the, most of you in here. Uh, that would be a, a, a classical, uh, reformed, uh, Calvinistic, if you like, Westminster Confession view uh, of providence. And that is the view that is being challenged, radically challenged, by uh, open uh, theists. Now, I've given you some of uh, some, uh, the advocates for open theism and some of the books that have been published. And you'll notice, uh, by and large, these are published by uh, well-known publishers, publishers within our own circles, if, you, uh, if I can put it that way, into Varsity Press, Baker uh, Books. Now, to uh, open, the, the open theism, I, I, want, to, I want to talk about their, their understanding of uh, divine knowledge. Um, how do they understand God's knowledge? Now, God is omniscient. God knows, uh, God knows everything that is possible to know. Now, notice that definition of omniscience. God knows everything that is possible to know. Now, if you have a doctrine of human libertarianism, namely that in, in a certain future you may choose A or B, God cannot know that in advance, because then you don't have libertarianism. If you have absolute libertarianism, and the, the absolute right and ability to be able to choose the contrary, God cannot know that in advance. That would, that would undermine libertarianism. They, they believe in omniscience, at least they say they believe in omniscience, but they define it somewhat differently. They know, God knows everything that is possible to know, but there are some things, even for God, that it is not possible for him to know. Uh, reality is composed then of both settled and open aspects. He, he knows the possible aspects as possible and the settled aspects as settled. Right, there, are things, there are things that God knows, and they're certain, but there are things that are not possible for God to know because of free will. And if, if the will is truly free, God cannot know that in advance, and certainly not determinate in advance, so that the future is determined by God. Now, God settles whatever he wants to settle about the future and perfectly foreknows the future as settled to that extent. Right? The, the, the big picture, if you like, God settles. That's the view of, uh, of uh, open theism. At least that's what they purport to say. And he leaves open uh, whatever he wants to leave open and perfectly foreknows the future as possible to that extent. And that's a, that's a limited extent, you understand. Now, what is the motivating principle for advocating this, uh, this view? And the motivating principle uh, for, for having this view is that God, God cannot foreordain or foreknow in advance the actions of free agents. If there is true freedom, he cannot know it in advance any more than you can if there is true freedom. And therefore, God cannot have precise expectations with regard to future matters that are the result of free human actions. Uh, Saunders, for example, is constantly uh, referring to the traditional view, uh, what he calls the Augustinian view, as manipulative. 
God is manipulative, and that's a, that's a very emotive word, of course, uh, that God manipulates uh, the future. He, he interferes with free will. He interferes with human choice. There is a, there is a force about it. There is a coercion about it. He gets his way no matter what you think or what you do. That's how Saunders would, would, uh, would caricature the, uh, the traditional view. God's foreknowledge then is rendered impossible because the actions of free men are necessarily unpredictable. Right? That's what brings this view, um, that, that's what lies behind this uh, view. Right, so let me put it uh, in the way I do on the top of page 3, uh, that if there are two possible choices, A or B, God cannot know in advance whether it will be A or B. The future, right, creation, the cosmos, is therefore open to the extent that God allows it to be so. Now, uh, that's, that's it. Now, how, how do you arrive at that position? And let me try and give you the case. Uh, let me be absolutely clear that I don't believe in open theism. I believe open theism, in the end, is a house of cards and it all comes tumbling down. Um, but let me give you the case for open uh, theism. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, God seems to confront um, something that's unexpected, something that seems to be unexpected to himself. Uh, in Isaiah 5, for example, uh, the Lord is talking about Israel uh, as his vineyard, and he is expecting from his vineyard um, grapes, good grapes. And instead, uh, why did it yield wild grapes? Right? I, I, I planted this vineyard, I cultivated this vineyard, I expected grapes, and what did I get? Wild grapes. God seems... God seems to confront an issue in an unexpected way. This is not what he expected. There's, a, there's an outcome here. There's, a, there's an eventuality here that God, God did not expect. How can the Lord expect one thing to occur only to find out that another thing has occurred? And the answer, God did not know this outcome in advance. Right? That's part of the way that they would read a passage like um, Isaiah 5. Uh, three times in Jeremiah, uh, the Lord expresses surprise at Israel's um, behavior, saying um, his children uh, were doing things which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Right? So he's, uh, he's confronting things that God, God you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these aha moments that God is having. Who'd have thought it? You never would have expected it. And, and the language is put into the, into the sort of mouth of God three times. I've quoted Jeremiah 19.5. Um, Nor did it come into my mind. Israel's behavior then was not eternally certain in God's mind. He, he didn't know this response. He didn't expect this response in advance. God sometimes experiences regret. Uh, some very f familiar passages now. Genesis 6.6. 6. Uh, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And he creates man, he falls, 
uh, the world uh, goes to, to oblivion uh, uh, and, and God expresses regret. I regret, uh, as, though, as though he wasn't expecting it. I, I regret that I have made man. Right? Uh, Saunders will say something like, uh, you know, if God, if God gets what he intends, which is what predestination seems to say, right? God gets uh, what he intends. How can he experience regret when something happens? This is exactly what, what he predestined. This is exactly the falling out of his decree. Maybe I'm making this case too well. <laughs> Let me remind you, I'm making the case for open theism here. Um, 1 Samuel 15:11. I regret that I made Saul king. Uh, God sometimes expresses frustration. Uh, Ezekiel 22, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. And he's frustrated by it. Therefore, I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Or 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, uh, should reach repentance. Right? So uh, here's Gregory Boyd. Why should God strive to the point of frustration to get people to do what he was certain they would never do before they were ever born, namely believe in him? And if predestination is true, If the classical view of predestination is true, why would God experience frustration when they don't do what clearly he knew they wouldn't do? Doesn't God's sincere effort to get all people to believe in him imply that it's not a foregone conclusion to God that certain people would not believe in him when he created them? Uh, This sounds like Arminianism, right? This, This sounds like... Arminianism, and there is a there is a link for sure between Arminianism and, and open theism, and it has to do with the issue of freedom, the idea of free will, the idea of uh, libertarianism. Uh, God speaks in uh, conditional terms. Uh, for example, when God is going to get Moses to be a spokesman before Pharaoh, uh, the first thing he does is to get uh, Moses uh, tell Moses that the Israelites will heed his voice. Moses immediately says, but, you know, behold, they, will, they won't believe me. They won't listen to my voice. To aid Moses, God demonstrates a miracle. And then he adds that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Moses remains unconvinced. And a second miracle is given with this comment. If they will not believe you, God says, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And then a third. If they will not believe uh, even these two signs, then there's a third one. Right? There are, there are some, some conditions here. Right? They, they may do this or they may do that. It's not certain how they're going to respond. Uh, God tests people uh, to, to know their character, to see what they're made of. And uh, Abraham and Isaac is uh, one such case in Genesis 22. God is... Uh, you know, God, God, knew, God knew all along that, uh, that Isaac wasn't going to be slain. He's just testing the faith of Abraham. Right? He, he wants to see what's in Abraham. What kind of faith has he got? And then the conclusion is drawn because God didn't know what kind of faith he had. 
Right? There, there, was a, there was a limitation in the knowledge of God. So he has to test him. He has to, he has to prove him. He has to demonstrate to satisfy even, even the mind of uh, God. God tested Hezekiah to know all that was in his heart. Uh, God changes his mind. This is even, this is even more uh, um, edgy, isn't it? God changes his mind. You know, God tells Jeremiah to go and observe a potter uh, at work. And the vessel was uh, making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And uh, although we, we, tempt, we, we sometimes use a passage like this, uh, especially in, in uh, Romans 9, the, the, the potter and the, making one vessel to honor another to dishonor, to emphasize sovereignty, there are others who use the same passage to emphasize that God changes his mind. Right? He, he, he makes it one way. It doesn't turn out like he wants it to turn out, so he, he makes it another way. Right? He changes his mind. Using the same illustration, in, in one case to demonstrate sovereignty, in another case to demonstrate the fact that God isn't sovereign. And that this thing has a kind of will of its own, so God, so God has to change his mind. Right, and uh, this is what, uh, top of page five, I've given you a little quote from Gregory Boyd again. Calvinists frequently cite the potter clay analogy in support of an omni-controlling model of divine sovereignty. The only passage that develops the analogy at length makes the opposite point. This passage celebrates the fact that God is not a unilaterally controlling deity who decrees an unalterable future. Instead, this passage teaches that even God has devised and announced a certain course of action. And he, like a, like a flexible potter, is willing and able to revise his plan if the people, uh, like the clay, will change. You know, this is a, this is a different view of God, you understand. This, uh, this view of God is, uh, God is like, uh, like a cosmic um, fireman. You know, he's always trying to put fires out. You know, things aren't going according to plan, so he has to race and, and, and put this fire out and put that fire out. Because if, if God wants to get, get to, to the end, an, an end that he, that, he, that he has designed, that he has asserted, right? Every, every so often this plan is going haywire. It's going this way, it's going that way. So God has to change his mind. Right? Uh, there's an aspect of that, of course, in dispensationalism. Uh, that God had one plan for, for, for the Jews, for Israel. But that plan went awry, so God now has plan B. Right? And it's the church, and, and ho- hopefully you can get back to plan A at some point in the future. Right? It's, it's the same idea. Actually, it's the same, it's the same premise that's operating. It all has to do with free will. With uh, libertarianism. To what extent has God determined, inviolably determined the future? So that the future will occur exactly as God intended it to, to, to occur. Now that's not, you know, that's a, that's a huge philosophical, theological, biblical question. But it's a very pastoral question. What do you say to someone who has lost a child? in an accident and do you say this was 
all part of God's plan. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord has taken away. Didn't just happen. This is not uh, just the the concatenation of uh, a thousand free will decisions that God was 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 totally bound that he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't alter in any way. His hands were tied. But this is this is not just uh, an esoteric philosophical question. It's a pastoral question, the one that's touched most of our hearts at some point or another in life. What do you say when terrible things happen? When really, really terrible things happen. Do you rest in the sovereignty of God, even though you don't understand it? And even though you may wish with, with, with all of your heart it would be otherwise, you, you rest that this was God's will. God is in control. He orders the end from the beginning. Everything happens exactly as God intends it to happen, in the way that it happens. And he wills it before it happens. What do you say as, uh, as Gregory Boyd is giving you a model here? It's a different model of God. God is the cosmic fireman. He's always trying to put fires out. But he has a plan. It's a, it's a big plan. It's a big picture. But the details are going wrong all the time. So he has to put out fires to make sure that it gets back on track. See, Gregory Boyd believes in God. Right? He believes that God has certain powers. He believes there is a plan, some kind of plan, a broad plan, a general plan. But God hasn't ordered the details. Because the details, the details are up to individual decisions that, that, that millions and millions and millions of individuals have made and are making and, and will make in the future. And each, each decision can set the plan astray. Uh, let me put it in a slightly different way, and it's a way that uh, sometimes it's, it's put in. Is the future risky or non-risky? As far as God is concerned, right, from the mind of God, from the perspective of God, is the future at risk? Is there a risky future? That's the question. Is providence risky or risk-free? That's what it boils down to. Now let me, uh, let me uh, analyze uh, what we've just said and, and, and let, me, let, me, let me try and counter it. And I want to say, uh, I want to say a number of things. Um, turn to page six. Um, I may come back to what I'm, what I'm writing on, uh, what I've written on page five. I, I may come back to that. Um, Halfway down the page, you'll see the word anthropomorphism, right? Halfway down page, five, page six, you see anthropomorphisms. Uh, we take this as no more literal than God having arms or legs or eyes. Now, we've been here before. Uh, those of you who are here for the first time, uh, I understand, you, of course, you, you haven't been here before, but, but most of you have been here before, and you've been quizzed, and you've passed excellently. Uh, all these quizzes, so you know what anthropomorphism means. Uh, the Bible speaks of God sometimes in human terms. Uh, it speaks of God having hands and eyes. Now, God doesn't have an- hands and eyes and, and feet. God doesn't have a body. God is immaterial. God is spirit. The created world, the created universe is, is part of creation. God is outside of creation. God is outside of space and time. 
God sees things, knows things in a, in a different way than we know things and, and, and see things. And when we, when we read passages like God uh, repenting, we, we understand that as, as, as God accommodating himself to, to a human way of thinking so that we can have some kind of grasp of, of God's involvement. But we understand that we can't interpret those in a, in a literal way. Otherwise, we end up exactly where, where Gregory Boyd has ended up, saying that, that God's knowledge of the future is, is limited. Now, open theism makes prophecy impossible. Right? That's my first uh, counter. That open theism makes prophecy impossible. And if, if God can state unequivocally that such and such a thing will happen in the future. It has to mean, it has to mean, he is in total, absolute control. Because it would only take one decision to bring that house of cards come crashing down. there There are a million decisions that can make a future prophecy not actually work. It isn't possible to say God controls the big picture but not the little picture. You know, if you hire an architect to build your, a house and he says, well, you know, I'm only interested in the frame. I'm actually not interested in the stairs or the joists. You know, I'm really not interested in, in, in the doors and the windows. I'm just really interested in the frame. That's not good enough. You want to make sure that the architect knows what kinds of what kind of nails and screws, everything, the, the, the details, not just the big picture. If God doesn't know the future, he can't predict it. Right? If he doesn't know, if there is an aspect of the future that God doesn't know because of free will human decisions, he cannot predict it. Open theism calls into question. The value of praying for conversion. If, if at the end of the day, conversion is the result of absolute libertarian decision making. It, it's, it's entirely my choice. And in a, certain, in a certain circumstance, I can choose A. And in, that, in the same set of circumstances, I can choose B. Why am I asking God to save this person? There's nothing God can do about it. It's entirely up to the individual, and he can choose one way or the other. What is the point of prayer for conversion if, if God doesn't know and, and, and cannot do anything about, because of absolute, absolute libertarianism, um, what is the point of prayer for uh, conversion? Uh, open theism, I'm in page 7 now. Open theism makes God's foreordination of the death of Jesus impossible. Uh, Think of all the issues that are involved in in ensuring that Jesus dies at Calvary. Uh, That Adam would fall in the first place. All all of the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, all all those marriages, All, all all those children I, I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I have this, have this um, astonishing thing that uh, I, I married 
a girl from Belfast. I, I didn't live in Northern Ireland. I'd never been to Belfast. I didn't want to go to Belfast. They were always fighting. <laughs> but in 1971, because they were fighting, she left Northern Ireland, came to Wales to study mathematics. And I was studying mathematics, so she was in my class. What are the, what are the chances of us meeting? Well, of course, it was divine providence. It was meant to be. It was the ordering of God. Now, you understand, in, in ensuring the death of Jesus, there are hundreds of marriages down through the pages of the Old Testament, each of which has to occur, and each of which has to produce children in exactly the way that they did. Supposing Ruth, right, was in the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus. Supposing Ruth had said, I'm not going to marry this chump called Boaz. She could have said, I mean, if she, if, if, she has, if she has libertarianism, right, if she has absolute libertarianism, freedom of contrary choice, she could have said, she could have said to Boaz, forget it. I'm not going to marry you. Or perhaps Boaz might have said, I'm not going to marry Ruth. A much more likely scenario, because Ruth needed a husband, much more than Boaz needed a wife. That's not a sexist statement. You just need to read the book of Ruth to, to, to understand why that is true. I, I, I don't have time to go down there. But, but trust me, Bo, Boaz did not need to marry Ruth, but Ruth needed a husband. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying to, to grant absolute libertarianism is actually to sell the entire store here. Because at every point, this, this, this plan could go wrong. Because the only reason why Jesus actually was born, let alone was crucified in Calvary, and Pilate could have let him free. If he has absolute libertarianism, Pilate could let him free. So Peter couldn't say at Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That doesn't make sense. If at any point, the reason why something happens is absolute libertarianism. Uh, same is true of the inspiration of Scripture. To, to guarantee that every jot and tittle from Genesis to Revelation with 40 different authors in three different languages, two million words, that all of that would end up as exactly what, what God wants. That's an enormous coincidence if that is true. Right? If, if you advocate open theism, you, 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 you cannot really end up with a doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? So open theism makes God into the cosmic fireman. Open theism claims uh, to the effect that the future is partially controlled by God. Uh, that claim, I, I suggest, is illogical and insufficient. It destabilizes eschatology, right? the doctrine of last things. The Bible says that Jesus will come again on the clouds of heaven in the same way that you see him go. Um, all of, all, there is no guarantee, there is, there is no guarantee that the end will be as God intends it to be if there is such a thing as open theism. Well, 
I think you've got my point here. I don't like open theism. I don't think this is the answer or the solution uh, to, the, to the problem of uh, the relationship between God's sovereignty and, and human decision-making, human liberty, uh, human responsibility, moral responsibility. Well, let me... Uh, that was easy. Let's... Uh, You've, you've got wind now that sometimes we go deep on Wednesday nights. So uh, take, take a deep breath and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into um, actually a, a 15th century uh, view uh, that is actually still around today uh, called middle knowledge. Now let me see if I can explain middle, middle knowledge to you and uh, one of its advocates one of its principal advocates today is uh, William Lane Craig uh, and I have a couple of books there that he's written and he's written very eloquently uh, and, and lengthily on the issue of middle knowledge now middle knowledge comes from uh, a Jesuit uh, from the, from the uh, 16th century uh, Louis de Molina the view uh, however it goes back into the previous century uh, Jesuit Spanish uh, in 1588 this is, uh, this is um, uh, uh, 24 years after Calvin's death if that, uh, if that helps in 1588 he uh, writes this book it's got a terrible title long title in, in Latin it doesn't uh, improve when you translate it into English uh, but in which he is propounding what's called the doctrine of middle knowledge. Now, let, let, me, let me try and explain what middle knowledge is. There are three kinds of knowledge. According to, uh, according to um, the scholastics uh, of the uh, emerging uh, 16th century, there were three kinds of knowledge. One was called necessary knowledge. God knows himself. And he knows all possibilities outside of himself. And he knows them necessarily. I'm thinking here of things like logic and arithmetic. Now, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's, it, it's always going to be 4. It's two, it, 2 plus 2 equals 4 to God as much as it is to you and to me. It, it's, it's how things are. Right? There is no universe in which 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now, if you think there is, you've got another problem. Right? So, so th there are things that are true. They're necessarily true. Uh, the laws of logic. Uh, because human beings have a skeletal structure, it therefore follows that John does not. Right? That's an illogical statement. Th there, is, there is no such universe in which that statement is true. It's not true in the mind of God, and it's not true in any universe that he creates. He could not create a universe that is illogical. Now, if you, if you, if you balk at that, you've got another, I mean, you've got another set of problems entirely. Um, and, and, a, and a very real unpredictability as to, as to what God is like. That, that what, you, what you think of God is entirely different from the way God actually is. Right? If, if the laws of logic and the laws of arithmetic aren't, aren't necessarily true, then God could be anything. He, he, he just, it, it just happens to be this is the way he's shown himself, but actually he's different from that entirely. 
That's a very scary thought, right? It's not a thought that I want to have. So there's, there's necessary knowledge. Then, secondly, there's free knowledge. Things that are true because God wills them to be true. They're not necessarily true. They don't have to be true, but God willed them to be true. Like, Columbia is the capital of South Carolina. Now, there are, there are folks uh, who, who, who can, can give you three-hour lectures on how Charleston could have been the capital of South Carolina. And I've sat in a car for that length of time listening to this lecture, how Charleston could have been and how Columbia did become the capital of South Carolina. It's not necessary knowledge. It is, in fact, free knowledge. God willed it to be so. Well, the Battle of Hastings took place in 1066. Well, there are two of us in this room who should know that, and the rest of you, perhaps that's not a piece of data that you learn in school, but it's something that Brits learn in school. Um, the Welsh word for heart is calon. You have to trust me. It is. <laughs> and I put it there because tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Um, we sing a hymn to the tune Calon Lion, right? A clean heart, uh, literally. Uh, it's not necessarily true. It, it, is, it is free knowledge. God, God willed that to be so. My name is Derek. Um, it doesn't have to be that, but that's what it is. God willed it to be so. Now, there's a third kind of knowledge. There's necessary knowledge, there's free knowledge, and then there's something called middle knowledge. And let me say from the very beginning that no one really denies that middle no the concept of middle knowledge exists, right? It's what you do with it and the implications that you draw from it that we divide over. Knowledge that God has of possibilities, possible futures, that he does not will. Right? They're abstract possibilities. Dallas is the capital of Texas. It isn't. You all know that that's not true. Austin is the capital of Texas. But it's possible. It's possible that Dallas could have been the capital of Texas. And in the minds of many it is. Um, the American Revolutionary War took place from 1886 to 1893. But that's not true. But it's possible that it could have been true. Uh, my name is Padraig. I like the name Padraig. Um, but it isn't. But it could have been. Actually, it's highly unlikely that it ever would have been. But it's a, possible, it's a possibility. It's something that's out there that God hasn't willed. Now, there are actually examples of middle knowledge in the Bible, and there are two that, that rise to the surface in any discussion on the issue of middle knowledge. One is 1 Samuel 23 about David. David is hiding in the city of Cala. Saul is trying to kill him, and a, a possible future is raised. Um, can I just lift it without reading the whole thing? Um, David said to the Lord, uh, halfway down, uh, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my, my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now, this never happened, you understand. David is asking God, 
If the men of Saul come down to Kela, where David is, will the men of Kela surrender David to the, the men of Saul? Will that happen? It's a possible future, a possible set of circumstances, and uh, God says, yes, they will. It's not a future that actually happened. It's a possible future out there, in which, in these circumstances, that is what happens. Um, Matthew 11. Uh, 20 through 24, and uh, uh, Jesus is denouncing uh, Chorazin and uh, Bethsaida. Chorazin and Bethsaida are part of, uh, part of Israel, part of, part of Judah, uh, and uh, they, they have not uh, responded to the miracles that Jesus has performed in those cities. And he's saying, if I had preached in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. But it's a possible future. It's not a future that actually happened. It's not a future that has been actualized. But in, in, in certain circumstances, if Jesus had gone and preached in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's middle knowledge. It's, it's not a future that is actualized. It's a possible uh, future. Right? Both of these passages depict um, possible, hypothetical futures that are not actualized and God knows what would happen in a given set of circumstances in a possible future. Now Louis de Moliner suggested there are there are no hang with me now there are an infinite number of possible futures and in one future you will choose X rather than Y. You have three undetermined libertarian choice in that future to choose X rather than Y. And God actualizes that future in which you freely chose. It's like um, abracadabra. Now you see it, now you don't. And all of a sudden, you've got a future, you've got an actualized future, our future, this future. We chose Jesus from pure libertarianism, and God actualized this future. There it is. We have free will. That's Molinism. Except, why does God actualize this future in which Joe? did not choose Jesus. Right? You've still got a principle of sovereignty. Even, 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 if, even if middle knowledge works here, and I, I don't think that it does, but e- even if it does work here, God sovereignly actualizes this future. And you might say, I, want, I don't want this future. I want, I want another future where, you know, where Joe or Ruth chooses Jesus, not this one. It, it only moves the problem to another level, but you've still got you've still got a principle of sovereignty. Now, there are several ways of illustrating what I've just talked about. Uh, middle knowledge has become kind of trendy in our circles, in, in, in certain circles, to try and address the issue of sovereignty and responsibility. Um, God is the grand chess master. 
Right? He can see. I mean, how many people play chess here? And, and you know, you, you can see six, seven, eight, nine moves ahead, and, and you're, 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 you're planning your, your course because you can see in a possible future, you know, if that and that happens, this is going to happen, and that and that happens, this is going to happen, and you can, you can, just, you can just see the, the future that way, the possible futures. And this is the one you're going to actualize, where this is going to happen, that's, and, and it's going to be all over. It's going to be chess mate. Um, there was an episode of Star Trek. Actually, it was a two-parter. It was called Year of Hell 1 and the Year of Hell 2. And if you're not into Star Trek, why not? <laughs> uh, Star Trek Voyager. And, and it was actually pure Molinism. I remember seeing it the first time. He, there was this man. He was in a, in a spaceship, and he was trying to get to a future. Actually, he was trying to get to a past in which his wife had chosen this rather than that and all he had left of her was a piece of hair in a, in a jar and he was, trying to, he was trying to maneuver everything, the circumstances in which this would happen and he, and he just couldn't do it because Voyager kept coming in and spoiling the, 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 the chemistry that he was trying to do. Now, uh, when I saw this two-parter, and I, I'm kind of a Trekkie, but um, I, you know, Voyager fourth quadrant, Captain Janeway, she just messed everything up. But it was, all, it was pure Molinism. It was, a, it was about possible, uh, trying to control possible futures in which free decisions of human beings uh, were being made. Now, those are just two ways of trying to address a very real and pastoral problem. And the problem exists at several levels. It exists fundamentally in the level of the issue of free will. To, to what extent are we free? Do, do we have the freedom of contrary choice? Do we, have an, do we have an absolute, an absolute freedom to make all possible choices? Is the future, therefore, in, if, if that is true, the future is undetermined? But you can't have both. And perhaps more pastorally, what do you say um, in circumstances where just dreadful things happen, you know, bad things happen? And can you say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Now, make, don't misunderstand here. Um, open theists regard Job as being in error. Right? They, they may believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but they regard what Job said as incorrect. That was part of Job's problem, that he, that he blamed God. And he should have blamed the devil or, or something else. But he shouldn't have blamed God because God wasn't in control. God, God's, God's sovereignty did not extend to this event. So the, there are enormous pastoral ramifications here. And for my part, for my part, apart from Job's statement, we have no certainty. There can be no assurance. There can be no guarantees. If there is, if there is a principle of absolute libertarianism, What's to say that when I choose Jesus, I don't unchoose him again? 
And what's to say if, if absolute libertarianism is something that is, is essential to humanity, what's to say that I won't unchoose him when I get to heaven? If that principle of absolute, of absolute uh, freedom of choice is, is the controlling mechanism here, what's to say that in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, if, if it comes about even, if, if I have absolute libertarianism there, that I don't unchoose him in certain circumstances at a certain point. I think um, the more you spell out open theism especially, uh, the more irrational and weird and actually unchristian it is. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we travel down difficult roads on these Wednesday nights. These are issues that are raised by the data of Scripture itself. We find ourselves asking uh, difficult questions because we don't understand and we don't understand everything that you've shown us, let alone things that you've not shown us. We want... Uh, we want discipled hearts that are obedient to you, submissive to you, minds that are in harmony with yours. We want to think Christ's thoughts after him. And we want to be like you and bear your image in that way. And we pray for those among us who, for whom providence has, has, has dealt uh, harsh blow uh, that has caused us to cry out uh, where were you in this circumstance or that circumstance and we find that the only, the only peace and comfort is to be found in knowing that you are right there in the very center of it for reasons that may not be known to us or ever known to us but that you do all things well we thank you for your sovereignty over us because apart from your sovereignty, we would not have chosen you. It is why we thank you for it rather than thank ourselves. So help us, uh, Lord, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.